All right, Tabletop and Beyonders, welcome back to the Tabletop and Beyond podcast. I am your host, Justin. I'm here with co-host Jason, and we have a very special guest with us today, Mr. Thomas A. Crowell Esquire. Thomas, welcome to the show. Hey. Hey, thanks so much. Uh, Really, really excited to get into the thicket of AI, copyright law, and how do we deal with this as gamers? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Our listeners will remember a couple episodes ago, we had uh, John Sumrow on here with us, who talked a little bit about his career in art. And um, he was kind of a mutual friend with us. He introduced us to you. And um, at the time, we were talking about like, oh, man, like, how is this really impacting artists? Because uh, like uh, gaming companies like um, Chaosium came out with a major statement that said, we promise to never use AI in art. And uh, Jason and I at the time were thinking about, wow, like that seems like such a strong blanket, like blanket statement that, um, you know, may work for them because they've got an art budget. But what about the little guys or something like that? And so we knew we wanted to talk about AI and art. We knew we wanted to talk about um, AI in art in tabletop RPGs in the in the gaming industry. And it just so happens that, Thomas, you are our expert for this because one, you're a gamer two, you're a lawyer and three, this is like your, your wheelhouse with, uh, with, with this stuff. So we're very excited to have you on the show to talk about all that today. Thank you. Yeah. But of course, before we get into anything, let's talk about our geek week. Jason, how was your geek week? It's, it's been a good week, man. It's been a crazy one, but I'm, I am making progress on my, uh, my Askergon. How do you say it? Askergon vampires, right? For my Warcry nice. band, so I played, uh, you know, Flesh Eater Courts when it first came out. I played uh, uh, Ogres uh, heavily all the way through several tournaments up through Adepticon or yeah, Adepticon, and now I'm decided I want to play something a little bit different, something that's not big smashing and kind of flying all over the table. So this one's going to have to make me think a little bit more. So I'm forcing myself into new Warband, but first I got to get them painted so they'll actually roll well on the tabletop. That's how it works every time. Yeah. Yep. So I've got my paint scheme and I've started kind of, I did my first guide to completion. I liked it. And now I'm batching them. So hopefully uh, in the next episode or show uh, or so, I'll show some pictures and we'll see them after I get the batch painting done on them. Awesome. Very That's good. on my table. Nice. Th- Thomas, how is, how was your geek week, sir? Oh, I, I hit a number of the classic geek areas. Uh, I represent comic book creators in addition to filmmakers. Uh, I'm also a copyright attorney, law professor. But the thing I love doing the most is working with my geeky clients because you, you kind of get the inside track. So this week I was able to read a soon-to-be-published graphic novel by one of my clients. Uh, and on the personal side, prepping for the boost up to level six of my Goliath Barbarian. So very excited. Next week, nice. we're, we're back in our, our regular monthly D&D game that has been yeah. going on now for 12 years without wow. missing wow. a month. So, you know, so, so uh, wait, 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 12 years and you're still on level six. Wow, uh, well, different, different campaigns, different okay, campaigns. Okay. <laughs> you know, we, we got up to level 18 and then we redid it and we did a different thing. I okay, ran okay. a call of Cthulhu. Like, wow, you are so, yeah. slow rolling. <laughs> Now, cool. are, do you guys play homebrew stuff, or you run like adventures out of the books? Like, it depends on who's in the who's in the hot seat. 
right? Um, so for the longest, so we played our longest campaign was about seven years long, and that was all homebrewed, and uh, it just went over the map. Um, uh, now we're playing something from a module, but the name of the module is hidden, so we can't <laughs> go and, and do research. Uh, when, I, when I do it, I, and I play Call of Cthulhu a lot, and this was the sort of John Sumro connection, um, John was actually the first person to walk me through Call of Cthulhu. I loved it so much that, uh, that I've been DMing, or, or I should say game mastering, keeper, Keepering. You're the keeper. Uh, keeper-ing. I'm the keeper of the Call of Cthulhu game. And last week, this is the last thing I'll say, but I'm so excited of having done this. I was able to manifest a dream I've had since childhood. Since <laughs> I first saw Star Wars on the silver screen, I did a mashup using Star Trek, the Modifia Star Trek game, okay. of yep. some of the Cthulhu elements of Star Trek old school, gupped them through the, the Guardian uh, of, of Forever, all the way to an alternate universe of Star Wars. So yes, I have now made in my gaming group the mashup of Star Trek and Star Wars. Ah, 14-year-old me would be so excited. Dude, that's like mixing that's like mixing Pepsi and RC Cola into this. I know. Yeah, I just better have a camera ready when it all comes up, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Uh yeah, I love I love some Call of Cthulhu and um and uh there's just so many great adventures that are are written. Like you can play them as one shots or you could run the you know, like the mask of uh I always mispronounce this Nayar Lothotep, you know. So, you always know when someone is saying it because they always do the Nala, Nila, you know, that one. And then we had Mike Mason on the show, right? Yeah. We had Mike Mason on the show, and he's like, oh, Nyarthal. And I'm like, yeah, exactly that. Yeah. So that's great. That's great. Well, it sounds like a pretty good geeky week for you. I spent some of my time painting some miniatures. But um, I also spent a good chunk of time playing Diablo 4 with my daughter, um, mm. which has been great. Um, you know, we, uh, we've we been working through... She decided she didn't like her character, so she started over with another one. And so I sort of started over with another one with her. And and so we're just exploring the world again. And you you're, know, not gonna the, you're not going to join the Whoopi Goldberg class action suit against Diablo? <laughs> No, no. Since since I have a since I have an Xbox, I'm totally fine. All she needs to do is just go get an Xbox. Right. Come on, Whoopi, you can afford it. You know. <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean that was I mean that's basically my geek week. It was it was good. It was just uh, focused on some of that stuff. So good times there. But um, yeah. Oh, one thing I did want to talk about. And I'm probably going to drop my background so our viewers will get a good good shot at my my hobby setup back there behind me. So that's where all the painting... Ooh, mirrored, mirrored, mirrored. I can't do this. That's where all the painting <laughs> Behind happens. your head. There it is. There, there it you is. go. In fact, you can see right there, that's where all of my uh, veteran guardsmen are being painted. And up here is my entire paint... Like, well, not my entire, but a majority of my pile of shame that just stares at me and mocks yeah. me for not painting. Your horns up. of Hushit are still up there? <laughs> yes, they are. Yes. And the Chaos Legionnaires. Yes, and all those Sylvaneth and Yeah, it's it's bad. But I wanted to take this off because I... Oops, upside down. Okay, so I got this in the mail the mm. other day from Chaosium. It's the Pendragon starter set. Mm, yep. This is not on the market yet. 
It doesn't come out on the market until September. So special. We got, I know we got a review copy that we will test out here in the, hopefully the next couple of weeks and uh, maybe do a little show on it. But um, pin dragon, if you guys are not familiar, it is the King Arthur's court Camelot, the Knights of the round table. Um, this um, starter box is a true chaosium starter box because I want to tell you what's inside this box. One, the adventure of the store, the adventure of the sword in the stone. Okay. <gasps> and it's a, basically a solo adventure that you get to play. Okay. And then you've got some rules and core mechanics. And then you have the sword campaign, which is a uh, beginner friendly campaign, taking the player knights through the most important early events of King Arthur's reign. And, um, it sounds like there's three adventures in that that you get to walk through and it comes with like um i don't know if I'll, maybe i'll hold it up tight but like right here you see all of the like stuff that comes in the box you know there's the adventure rule books and stuff like that but tons of handouts little cards yeah. you know dice like all that kind of stuff it's not as hefty as the rune quest one because the rune quest had all those folios for the characters oh. and stuff like that but um it it is packed with great stuff and it looks like it's going to be awesome so if you are ever interested in being chivalrous knights in you know medieval times then um and not the restaurant you know but uh you know in the olden times then um keep an eye out because i think pre-orders are up for this pendragon starter set and i think they come out in september so yeah, well there was plenty plenty of non-chivalrous activity in that time period too though so yeah something for yeah. everyone <laughs> but you're part of the round table so you need to be chivalrous there right? was plenty non-chivalrous stuff as part of the round table too <laughs> yeah but you know yeah, you're supposed to be chivalrous come on yeah <laughs> so yeah so uh but i'm excited to try that out it's going to be interesting uh, to, to All I can think out. of is Excalibur. I'm gonna have to go watch Excalibur again, like the uh, 1970s. Yeah. You know, uh, King Arthur story. Um, with Patrick Stewart with hair. Patrick Stewart has ah, hair yeah. in that movie. I can't watch it. <laughs> 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 That's right. You're like, this isn't uh, Professor Xavier. Um, uh, but what was it? There was also the one. It was called, I think, First Night with Sean Connery and Richard Gere. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's, I mean, there's been several. Yeah. And he was like, stories. he was like, um, he like Sean Connery was King Arthur and Richard Gere was, oh, yeah. um, Lancelot, I think. And, uh -huh. and there's uh -huh. another lady that was Guinevere. Yeah. Yeah. So good stuff. It's going to be fun. Yeah. Absolutely. So anyway, uh, excited about that. But let's get to our main topic tonight, uh, which is again talking about AI in art, AI in tabletop games, the gaming industry. Does it have a place? Does it not have a place? What are the legal ramifications behind all of these types of things? And uh, as we said before, Thomas, you are our you know eye in the sky. Basically, you're 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 the guy that uh, I think is going to walk us through this. But why don't you give us a little bit more about yourself? Uh, talk talk about yourself a little bit and. Um, like, why are you uniquely positioned for this, like, moment in gaming history, I think? Sure. So let me start off. I'll give you this sort of the, a brief overview, and then I want to sort of punch into some slides uh, that, that I have, just a little bit of background that might contextualize yeah. things. Um, 
but as I said at the top of the show, I'm a lawyer, I'm a copyright uh, law professor, but perhaps more interesting for this topic is before I turned to the dark side and took the bar exam, uh, I was a science reporter. I was a science TV reporter. And one of the stories I was covering quite uh, quite in detail in the 90s, I am that old, um, that uh, was, was this nascent um, industry of AI that was that was really I mean AI has been as a field goes back to the 1950s and computer AI but the 90s is when it was really starting to sort of become something that could be real and I remember going to uh, to sit down with some scientists at IBM and having them talk to me about what this new world of AI was going to be and it just it rocked my world you know the fact that we'd be creating images that we'd have uh, computers that could research things and think like like brains with neural networks. Uh, I then went to law school and I asked my copyright professor, who's a well-known um, professor, uh, well-known, uh, arguably one of the biggest experts in copyright law in the country, about AI. I was fresh off the heels of, wow, this AI thing. And he sort of gave me this response of, why do we need to worry about that? That's, that's, that's not here. And I remember thinking, gosh, this is sort of my first experience with, with the law being over here and tech being over here and realizing that yeah. there's a little bit of, of catch up. Now, I want to say sort of in defense of my professor, he was actually right. You know, one of the things that is misreported now is how misaligned copyright law is. I came in thinking, well, gosh, you guys need to wake up and listen. He showed me back in the 1960s, the 1960s, Congress was considering the implications of machine-generated artwork. So at the outset, I want to say this is not an issue of, of that is new, right? It is something that, that copyright uh, has been dealing with or at least anticipating for a while. Um, let, me, let me punch in, if I may, a couple of slides yeah, just to yeah, sort yeah. of get, get that, that part up before we get to the nitty-gritty because I feel, I feel the law professor in me starting to come out and starting to talk about copyright. But I, I want to just sort of put a couple of things on the board before we do. So I'm going to click present if I, if I can. Uh, and um, we're gonna, I'm going to share my screen right now. And one of the first things, arguably the thing that I am the proudest of is this. I was actually a cultist in the Cults of Cthulhu book that was illustrated in part by John Sumrow. So thank you, John, but that's me on the right. I am a cult leader. So I just had to get that out because I, that I was really say, is the highlight. I it's not you on the left. The mask. <laughs> Ooh, that's with the mask. So a couple of things. Um, if anybody wants more info on this, there's my URL, thomascrowell.com. Um, and if you want a, another sort of approach, those of you out there who are filmmakers uh, who want to know how to use AI or and how to avoid some of the pitfalls uh, in your filmmaking, I'm doing a lecture on July 13th on stage32.com about AI. Those of you who are attorneys and who want CLE, that's continuing legal education credits on comic book law and AI is going to be the big topic that we're addressing this year at New York Comic Con. We've been doing a um, series of lectures every year for, uh, for attorneys, basically training them how to work in the geek sphere. And AI is now absolutely uh, front and center in what we're going to be talking about. So um, you can go to New York It's interesting to me that like... Um that you know you think like oh i'm gonna create like an rpg or i'm gonna create it my own comic or something like that and you don't necessarily think that you need a lawyer for that right, right? 
And I think that became super clear when Sumro was on the uh, podcast with us and he was like, hey, I'm talking about my lawyer. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And and I realized that, you know, like just like any other industry, like if you're if you're in it and you need to protect yourself, like you, you need you need a good lawyer. Right. So even even comic book guys need lawyers, <laughs> which is why. And thank you for teeing that up. I actually wrote the very first legal guide for the comic book industry, the pocket lawyer for comic book creators available (laughs) where fine books are sold, including on amazon.com. And for you filmmakers there, uh, I have the pocket lawyer for filmmakers Uh, also amazon.com or where fine legal books are sold. Phew. Okay. I'm done with my self promotional stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Always have to get that in front and center. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And you know, I think it's, I think it's great for our listeners. If you are interested, um, you know, he mentioned that your your um, next lecture is a webinar. So you don't mm-hmm. need to be in the New York area. That's you don't right. need to be, you know, it's online. You can join them. I think I saw there's a promotion right now for it's $32, right, to to jump in there and, and um, you know, uh, listen to some of this. I think it's really, really interesting stuff. So, yeah. Thank you. No so um, I'm ready to get to the legal stuff. Uh, I could talk more about me, but I don't think that's what people want to hear. So uh, I'm ready to, to, to do I hand present back to you. You can grab it. Yeah. Uh, I'm so, okay. So let's talk about, um, let's talk about like, um, I, I think we need a little bit of a foundation. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think some of that foundation comes in like copyright law. So like what, what is copyright law at its heart? Um, you know, I think a lot of people, as you mentioned before the show, some people think that copyright law is like trademark law, right? which I mean, there's probably like a Venn diagram of stuff that, you know, with copyrights and trademarks, but it's not necessarily this one and the same. And, um, I think if we have an understanding of what that is, maybe, um, maybe that'll help us, uh, understand like our later conversation about like why AI in art matters. Sure. So I think the first thing we have to understand about copyright law, um, especially here in the U.S., uh, is that it is one of the one of the rights that's absolutely included in the body of the Constitution. So we didn't even wait for the Bill of Rights uh, in Article One, uh, Section Eight, Clause Eight, which enumerates the powers that Congress has. It gives us a direct, "Hey, Congress, you can make laws about copyright and patent." And it gives us more than just the express sort of mandate of conduct of Congress. It gives us the rationale. Now, why I slow down and lean into that is because every time you have a court case that's adjudicating something that has to do with constitutional law, one of the things a court does is it goes, okay, well, why, why do we have this? What is the constitutional purpose this, is, this law is trying to enshrine? And um, here in the Constitution, it's pretty direct. It says that we're granting you these powers um, for authors and inventors, the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries for a limited time. Uh, And what this means is authors, copyright owners, uh, inventors, patent owners potentially, um, have these monopolistic rights in their creations. And it's up to you, Congress, to figure out what that means. And so the history of copyright law in this country started with the U.S. Constitution 
if we want to go really back and polish off our history books, it, it started in the late 16 teens, or rather the 1700s uh, um, with Queen Anne and, and uh, in England with the uh, Statute of Anne. So it's a long law. It's, it's, it's an old law, and it's one that's changed literally many times over the course of our history. The reason to start there is that you have to recognize that it's a, a series of accretion of rights. The first right we had under copyright law was the right to protect others against copying our books, essentially. Didn't say anything about public performance. If I wrote a play and you wanted to put on the play, um, I couldn't stop you early on in copyright law. And it was only through a series of changes in recognizing the technological shifts. So when photography came in, yeah. this is really relevant to a, the history of AI. When photography came in, it kind of broke the, the thinking because, okay, we get what it means to protect a work of an artist, to protect the work of a painter or a writer, because these are works that were produced by humans doing a thing. But, but a camera, that's just showing us what reality is. Why should that be protected under copyright? And that's really the first time that courts in the U.S. had to deal with this notion of the sort of the, the abstract level of what it is in authorship that is protected beyond just the product of, of, our, you know, of, our, of our work. How can a, a machine create something that is copyrightable? Because we all know photographs can be copyrightable. And the court came out with some very interesting reasoning, and I'll sort of stop speaking and, and get out of law professor mode and, and take some questions. But, but the reasoning that it arrived at is key for understanding what we can protect under AI law. It said, look, the photographer selected where the objects were going to be. It, it, it arranged, the photographer arranged them and, and coordinated all those aspects uh, in front of the camera. So in a real sense, the authorship of a photograph is in the placement of the camera, the placement of the lights, the arrangement of the subject. It is not in you necessarily having to put pen to paper. It's not in you writing or, or describing. It's in your collection, selection, and arrangement which is why I can take works from 19th century advertisements that are no longer under copyright, put them together in a collage, and your argument, dude, those are not protected by copyright. Each of those are individually not protectable. I can make the argument that the collection, the selection and arrangement of everything I did in the collage has its own copyright. So I'm gonna pause there because I think you can start to see how this may impact the results that we get from the, from the AI algorithm. Mm -hmm. So that's the sort of foundation. Copyright protects works of expression that are embodied in a tangible medium. It does not protect ideas. It does not protect um, our likeness. It does not protect uh, a brand name. Mm -hmm. The brand names, trademark, likeness, rights of publicity. Copyright is for works of expression. And there's a lot of confusion about what that means when it comes to AI, because people sort of see it as a, hey, this is art that's under attack, as opposed to a more, I think, nuanced copyright law argument that, that is being had. Yeah, so question for you on this then, and going back to your example of the photograph, right? When the photo, mm -hmm. because a lot, of, a lot of our evolution of law uh, deals with, we kind of create legislation around the circumstances that we're in and maybe a little bit looking into the future, but just a couple steps ahead. And it's not till something- major oh it's not till something major evolution kind of jumps in and then we hey oh we actually have to respond to that and we go back and we revisit 
do you think that um you know maybe the foot maybe the photograph was a big jumping point for us and do have we do we have legislation that covers us far enough in advance to kind of cover the ai right now are we trying to are we trying to kind of interpret and apply current understanding to something that's in front of us that we don't quite have our grasp on right now what are your thoughts mm -hmm. on that so this ai is impacting copyright law structures all around the world so it's not um it's not wrong to say that each country is dealing with it in its own way and there's some omnibus legislation that's being proposed in different places that being said the structure of our copyright law currently deals with uh i think adequately many of the ai issues i say many not all because the other thing that's sort of happening in the news is there are several issues that are being conflated together into one big issue and there's there's a lot of uh nuance that's just being lost so um that never happens in the news mm -mm. yeah yeah losing, so what, I know what you're talking nuances. about I've never seen yeah this. so so the simplest um thing to that copyright can deal with america u.s copyright law can deal with whether or not something is substantially similar to a work that is under copyright and protect that work that's under copyright so if you punch in uh, a prompt into AI and it spits out Spider-Man looking, you know, creation. Um, copyright would know how to deal with that and say, hey, it is, you don't have the copyright to that. It's substantially similar to Spider-Man. But, um, but what it doesn't really know how to deal with because of some of the case law dealing with the internet is the, is the issue of how the data was sourced. Right now, I don't want to get too far afield if we maybe we want to lay down how AI works, but but it's the the data aggregation and where those source uh, those sources came from, arguably, uh, and people have argued this, also infringe the copyright when you tell bots to go online, find published images, collect it in the database, uh, and uh, to train AIs to uh, to make images. So that's a separate image, though. It's a separate issue than what happens when it comes out of your um, your app, right? Those are two very different issues. And then the third issue, which I hate to say, it's not really a legal issue, it's a normative one, is the displacement of artists. So from a, from a copyright perspective, there are issues, but the issues of economics and economic displacement and marginalization of creators, or I would, I would argue continued marginal, economic marginalization of creators, um, you know, imposes a different set of structures, which quite frankly, that's not a copyright issue. I mean, I can speak mm -hmm. to it, but, but when people talk yeah. about artists are being hurt, uh, copyright law come to my rescue, that's not really the domain of copyright law. Um, to say, hey, artists, you can preserve this area that you had. The you had a monopoly to creating images. Now a computer can come in and do it. That's you know deciding the economic fairness or unfairness of that is not a copyright issue. Yeah, I think I, I thank you so much for breaking that out into three different issues because I don't think that that is something that is. Um, widely understood right. uh i told you earlier you know before the before the show that i just read a whole big long white paper on generative ai and um the the two the two copyright issues that you were talking about right which is the output of right. the generative ai that's one function where you can absolutely like you said compare and contrast and see does this is this too similar to other copyrighted material super easy 
you know, and I don't, I, I, I actually don't know that, and, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't know that um, a lot of people are arguing with, or, or arguing that um, we need more copyright law around the output of the AI. It seems to be more focused around the input, which is that, um, you know, these, these um, AI source scrapers are, you know, getting copyrighted material, um, licensed material, all, all of that type of stuff, um, and scraping it into their, um, you know, into the bots, and then they're getting trained on it, and then they're able to, you know, do similar techniques to recreate pieces that aren't similar to the things that they did, but, you know, it's trained it enough that it can become a rightful artist in its own right type of thing. And so it seems like the real... Um, the people who are really serious about copyright and AI and art are more focused on the input rather than the output. And maybe I'm wrong about that. So I, I do see a, a lot of heat on the output in certainly my, my feed and the people I represent, because I represent okay. a lot of comic book artists, you know, people who, who draw from Marvel and DC and, and their own work and, and game designers and, and, yeah. and game artists. Uh, and there's a lot of, I would say, confusion. I mean, Justin, I think you're absolutely right in terms of how you're a analyzing it, that the the correctness of how we're looking at it, it doesn't always percolate down to the level of anger of artists right, right? and and one of the things i i hear a lot is this hey the ai has taken my copyrighted style and i want to pause there copyrighted style that's not a correct statement of the law there's no copyright in a style so when you sort of start with that premise that I've developed a style and it is mine and no one else can use this style, uh, unfortunately, that's, that's from a legal perspective, that's not a protectable thing uh, under copyright. It, uh, and it's not really protectable in other ways, too, unless it is, um, you know, in, unless you're talking very, about a very specific design of a container that is being used in a trademark form. But again, that's not what we're talking about. So, so a lot of the confusion and the heat and the anger is coming, in my view, from a misunderstanding of copyright law rather than uh, there is a lot of accurate anger, but there's also a lot of misplaced anger. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of the initial reaction, um, you know, I follow a lot of indie game designers and obviously they have... Um, they're scrapping for cash, right? And they're trying to make ends meet. And they're trying to keep the lights on, and but they're also they're also working alongside artists that are scrapped for right. cash. You know that are all those things, right? And there's been I've seen a lot of them um, kind of respond to I think the second the third thing you said, which is um, you know number one looking at you know this is this could displace us from our career choice or our field choice from an artist's perspective, which, which I think, you know, I'd like, to, we'll get a little bit further if that's, you know, like you said, a, a real thing or not, but, uh, but also the, you know, if it's consuming, if it's consuming all of this data uh, and then very easily able to pop out, you know, pop out something that it has a style, like you said, style representing something, um, you know, is that, is that violating, is that violating art? And I, when they first, or not art, but violating the copyright, when, when they first started to make those arguments so fast, like, oh, it's consuming all of these words of art and it's just popping something out. It's not, you know, it's not fair. And, and those things, I think a lot about, you know, when, when a lot of these artists are making their own work, 
they pull up an inspiration board. And right next to them, they'll put all of their favorite artists and their songs and their music and all of these other people's copyrighted work right next to them for inspiration. And so kind of the thought was like, what really is the difference between a hu- the wet works up in a human's brain training your own self on other people's work versus an algorithm training itself and other people's work to produce something as well? What are your thoughts I, think, I think there's a key difference, and that's... Okay processing time and it's such a small thing right you an an ai will spit out a wonderful design or series of designs you can then choose from within 10 seconds that might take an artist an entire day to do and the uh the accretion of that you know you could see the logarithmic progression if that's the model that's adopted because you have this sort of john henry issue of the you know man with the with the hammer trying to outrun yeah. the, the the steam train um so in a very real again economic sense as opposed to a copyright sense the um just that speed you know is if it's not pushed back against effectively or constrained um uh, it will displace a lot of artists and mm-hmm. has already uh and, and I, I also want to say too that you know yes i'm speaking very much with my law professor hat on here not legal advice law professor hat but but my background before all that uh, i have a bfa you know i was a i was a film and tv guy I, i've been an actor i've been a graphic designer so so it's not lost on me the passion and the anger that yeah. the that the artists yeah. feel absolutely and i just have to be very careful like if you're asking me from a copyright perspective i'm going to take off the artist anger hat and put on the copyright hat and i'm going to answer it like that because until artists and i'm sorry artists i am talking to you i've taught our school for years you gotta listen you gotta get the copyright law under your belt so you know where you can push back against if that's what you want to do because when you make an argument that says you can copyright style or you can copyright an idea people on the other side are not going to hear it because they're going to dismiss everything you say after that. So it's just, I think it's important for artists, if you want to fight against this, to get the knowledge of how it actually works. Yeah. And, and I'll, you know, I'll just follow up with, I think there, you know, I obviously I'm, I'm an engineer. I've talked about that on, on this podcast here or there. So I look for innovation. I look for the steps ahead. I look for the evolution. My wife thinks that I'm going to bring the destruction of the world in five to 10 years. That's why he has a Terminator. Stuff yeah. there behind them. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm the one wiring them up. No, but uh, I, <laughs> and I'm neutral. Yeah, yeah. as you can right, see, right, I'm the, the perfect attorney, neutral, correct, <laughs> true neutral. But but at the same time, like there is absolutely still in me an appreciation for a human created thing, right? Like if yeah. somebody gives me a if somebody gives me a wooden spoon and they say, here you go, I bought this for a dollar fifty, you know, at uh, at Bed Bath and Beyond. And you can stir in your pot with it. And then someone else gives me a wooden spoon and says, I carved this. It's going to have way more appreciation in my heart for it, right? I think there's still that, oh, wow, like the investment and the understanding that and the amount of, you know, calories and computational power just inside your body that you had to do to come up with this talent and develop the skill. That's not lost in our culture, right? And I think we're coming to a crossroads where maybe people are afraid that we're going to lose some of our culture if it becomes so, you know, diluted and widespread and the ability to create like this, these awesome work uh, and things there. So that, that, that I, you know, I, I'm kind of jumping around in our questions, but uh, kind of curious on what your thoughts are on what this could do for our culture in terms of accessibility, because you have these people 
that maybe have never been able to bring what's in their in their dreams in their heads out because they haven't had the talent or their career path or their life hasn't allowed them to develop that talent. Now they have a way to express themselves. Um, is that a positive thing or is it going to start to kind of, you know, put too much water into the milk so that it just gets watered down? What are your thoughts? So uh, first of all, I love the question because there's, there's a lot in there that I want to sort of tease it. out because there's, there's a lot there. Um, from the perspective of where AI is right this moment when we are talking in June of 2023, AI and the way the model works, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Jason, but, but there's a probabilistic, there's a randomness that's built into generative AI uh, that you're never going to get to the point where you can, using this tech, to punch in exactly what you want to see and have it come out. And I think that's relevant both from a copyright perspective, but also mm -hmm. from a, hey, I want to be able to express what I see in here. Mm -hmm. Because in a very real sense, you know, the AI that we're using now, 2023, is going to do its own thing, right? It's going to take some of your words. You don't know how it's going to mix them up. You don't know how it's going to combine them to make a whole. It'll just give you something that's going to look pretty or weird or pretty weird. And copyright <laughs> law recognizes that. And that's kind of one of the reasons why it doesn't award copyright to the product of um, what comes out of the algorithm. Mm -hmm. But as I said, there's this other side of, well, does this open up new economic line? Even at its best, let's say AI now goes to, you can tweak it however you want. Does this help artists? Does this help people who are marginalized economically suddenly have more resources, more ways to get their word out? Uh, I would say there's a flip side to this coin, and I actually approach it from I think 180 degrees differently, quite frankly, is that the, there are a lot of economically marginalized artists right now who all they can afford are a paintbrush or, or canvas or they have a computer and they can write something and they're using their own talents, not through AI. Those people are going to be quickly shunted aside when you have somebody you know, who's just going bit, 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 uh, Mario only, it's the Incredible Hulk and it's Star Trek too. Or what, yeah. you know, and then, and then whatever comes out of that is going to, may look better, more professional than the, you know, the guy who's living yeah. in a, in a semi-wide trailer, all he can do is paint, you know? So, so I think there's, you know, I don't think it's as easy as, hey, if we stop AI, these marginalized people won't have means. I think it's actually the more we enable an, uh, AI, the people who could, not compete effectively, but for this, these sort of inexpensive resources will now have no means to compete or, yeah, or fewer means to compete. I, I really liked what the um, kind of analogy that you made earlier, which is, you know, John Henry versus the, the yeah. you know, uh, steam machine. And, and um, because I, there's a reason that that story sticks around in our lore, in our cultural lore right now, because it's, it, fits so many different things that we have done when the internet first came out it was you know john henry and this you know and the steam machine right. but because now we've got the internet versus right. you know like writing letters and and actually and photoshop ah uh, yeah yeah you know yeah exactly you know and i mean and i think this is just one of those next iteration of tools now i do think that these generative ais have a lot of potential that we aren't even keen to understanding right now right we're in like the toddler stage of these generative ais and um and i think one one important point that you made is 
you know, you throw your words in there and it kind of just randomly does something. If you throw your words in there again, it's going to be completely different. Even right. if you put it in the same order. If I put um, Mario, Incredible Hulk, Star Wars, you know, and Jason did it and you did it, we would get three very different things. Um, and that's just the nature of the beast that it is. And it's so there's... We're, AI right now, generative AI right now doesn't have consistency. It doesn't have um, uh, consistent quality as well um, no. that you that you can kind of rely on, I think, to be really monetized. Now, I think that there's some people that are finding creative ways to they find that weird, pretty weird type of stuff. And they're like, oh, cool. I'm going to I'm going to monetize this, you know what I mean? Or, or put something out here and um so I think I think there's opportunities there, like you said. Um, but I do I do feel like right now a lot of the feeling is this John Henry versus the steam machine, and um, you know I think that um, that society always likes to root for the human in that case. You know what I mean? Because we identify with John Henry, like the the person that's like fighting against the odds, you know. And so I you know from a moral perspective. I think that the tabletop community, the tabletop gaming community is rooting for the artists, the starving artists, right? They're pulling for them because they just, they, they don't want that to go away. They don't want these, they don't want to see these people suffer. But at the same time, like, I don't think that the machine's going away either. You know what I mean? Like the right. machine was here to stay. So, so, um, you know, that brings up some interesting, um, some interesting things. So now, with that in mind, you have our John Henry artists that are out there creating art, right? You have the the steam machine that's out there creating art. Both of them are are you know cranking things out. I will look at what Sumrow does and be like, dude, that is amazing. Like I love it. I love that cultist on the right. Like he's a handsome fella, you know. And then also, you know, Jason will throw. Um, uh, an AI generated art piece that he saw in light of me. And I'm like, Oh my goodness, that's amazing. Like, look at that. Look at that expanse. Like the diorama there is just like crazy. Like it's so good, you know? And I'm sitting here looking at both of them being like, I love both of them for what they are. I love both that I'm, you know, that I, that I'm seeing. Um, so if, if art is intended to like provoke, um, you know, a, a, an emotion or, or, you know, suck you in, if we're, um, if if we see that that does that on the human side, but it also does it on the AI side, like is there really a difference in art at that point? Do you think? So taking off the copyright hat, putting on the yep. artist hat, right? Because yep. it's a different set of structures that we are looking at when we're talking about is it art versus is it protectable, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so just on that front, uh, and this is really because we're now we're in the realm of art. A lot of it is opinion, personal opinion, as opposed sure. to case law. Uh, my own view, um, I have a, and I recognize it may be in the minority, by the way, uh, is I have an issue with artists creating art without an intent. So in other words, if you just slap some things together through, and I'm looking at you, Jackson Pollock, I hate Jackson Pollock. I know you're going to get a lot of <laughs> hatred for that, but abstract expressionism is lost on me. Sorry. Me too. I, me sorry too. if I offended people, but, but to me, there's a difference between a Maxfield Parrish, you know, who's going to create these very AI looking, you know, uh, paintings, yeah. but who has a very specific 
uh, intent. You know, Maxwell Parrish would mm. would draw things uh, along the golden mean. Would, would it was is very specific. Yeah. You know, um, pulling from the past as he was adding some of the applied art of the early. 20th century on top. So there was, there was specific things he was trying to evoke as opposed to just, hey man, it's what you mean, man. And, yeah. and, the, and the issue I have with, if you're doing AI art and you punch in, you know, whatever, and it comes out with this beautiful thing that you didn't intend because you just punched in Mario, you know, uh, Incredible Hulk and Star Trek, which of course all three of us are now going to go and do at the end of this podcast. I've already done it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it, it doesn't, to me, it lacks the intent. Again, not copyright law, I'm talking about art. And so if you're just throwing something up and saying, let the machine do the thing and it is what it is, it's pretty, right? Uh, to me, that's not art. You know, you have to have a continuation from artist through end product. And again, I know I'm, I'm speaking more from opinion here rather than when I'm talking about copyright law where I can point to a case or a statute. So mm. yeah, you can disagree with me and you're not going to be wrong. It's just, that's, that's my take and yeah. what I like to see when I call something art. So then how, what are your, what are your thoughts then with tools like mid journey where you can punch in a prompt and it gives you something that maybe is not a perfectly what you had in your head and you can continue to refine it as you know, you neck down and neck down and you get closer and closer to what you had emotionally until you find something that is, that is what I was trying to portray. Yeah. Maybe it's not, you know, if I put my pen to it, it wouldn't look the same, but it's captured what I was feeling now. Now I'm ready to stop, you know, refining and refining and refining. What is that then? Is that art? Cause you've expressed an intent to pull a thought or, or a, um, you know, I, I think idea. so. I, I think so. I think it's, uh, and again, not talking about the copyright perspective, just yeah, staying yeah. on the, on yeah. the art, right. We're, we're with our berets on our little French berets. Um, uh, I think yes, and, and I think it does get closer to what we've all been talking about using it as a tool because it's effectuating our vision. Mm. What it lacks, though, is is the the talent of creating it. But here's where it's where that argument of saying, "Oh, you need talent," that's going to fall by the wayside the minute you mm -hmm. look at how Warhol created his pictures. Hey, how D how Leonardo did, how most of the Renaissance artists did. Most of the paintings that we see, uh, that we think of when we think of famous Renaissance era paintings, may not have been painted by that famous artist. Many of them had their own shops like Andy Warhol did. And they were like, great, here's the sketch. Okay, you do, the, you do this part, you do this part, you're good at hands. Unlike an AI, you do this part. <laughs> and, yeah. and so yeah. it's not the case that, that the history of art has been the history of auteurs. It's just not. So, so that I suggest people who start with that may need to go back to art school and learn a little bit of art history because yeah, I mean, I, I'd, I'd even pull on that a little bit further and say, if you think back to the, you know, the, uh, the photography aspect of it, right? Mm -hmm. Like those, those people who initially started to create, you know, things that were capturing moments, they didn't create the mechanisms. They didn't create the film. They didn't, you know, all those things. In fact, today, you know, many people consider themselves artists with their smartphone and they know nothing about, or, or, or deal with the technology that created that. They're, but they're using that technology to refine and put filters on and and kind of right. tweak the output of that. And I think, I think it's important to recognize that tools are a part of creating art, right? Yes. And AI, the the reality is, some really smart group of people sat down and put thousands of hours into developing an algorithm that can produce something, right? I think a lot of the concern that I hear is people are like, okay, but now the, many people can use that tool. Like if let's say, let's put, 
let's step back and say we have an alternate history. Someone created an algorithm and they never shared it. And they started producing this art saying, I wrote this, you know, 3000 lines of code algorithm that I spent 10 years of my life and my doctorate working on that can produce these images. And he keeps it all to himself. Can't you argue that he has developed the talent and the ability to produce that work? Well, uh, copyright law has been historically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess, I guess, are you asking me as the Over artist? Copyright. Or you ask me as a, as the as the copyright guy. You know, uh, it depends upon the answer. But, uh, but I would say certainly starting with the copyright perspective, you know, you must have a human who is co who is at least doing the collection, the selection, the arrangements. Right. That's mm. U.S. copyright law. Okay. It's about as black okay. letter law as you can get because of that case that that I was uh, talking to you about, which incidentally, a little bit of an aside, but it's kind of cool, is that that case, um, Burrow Giles v. Serenay, you can I'll pull it up, involved a photograph of Oscar Wilde. So in a very real sense, I, and I love this as, you know, as a, as a geek and a, and a history buff, I love the fact that Oscar Wilde in some way, shape or form is still influencing how we're creating art in 2023. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's awesome. strange bedfellows indeed. Um, as an artist uh, answering your question, I would say that, that however I can get my image that's in my head out, that's what I want. You know, I, I think that most artists feel that way. And there is certainly a sense of pride of I can put pen to paper. The thing that I see most in my feed is artists rebutting the AI uh, creators by saying, hey, if you want to do this, you should go to art school. If you want to do this, you should put pen to paper and put some, you know, your, your butt in the seat and work hard the way I did. And it's um, and I get that. I get that anger, especially if you're protecting an economic sort of uh, strata that, that you live in that has always been under attack. Right. It's not as if it's not as if artists are billionaires. Right. No one thinks that artists are the rich people. Um, right. So, uh, again, I get the anger, but but it's not. Uh, but I think there is a lot to be said about AI being a tool but also not generating something that may be protectable by copyright it seems like i'm arguing two different points and perhaps mm -hmm. i am but copyright all comes back to this this goal right this this rationale that i was talking about at the top of the show of incentivizing people to create more work that's it mm -hmm. that's why we have copyright law is we award a limited monopoly to your work which is subject by the way before even ai raises its head to things like fair use de minimis use you know there's a lot of things that you could do with somebody's copyright notwithstanding the fact that they have a monopoly on it without their permission but it's there to incentivize artists to create more and so if that is the rationale which it is the rationale then having AI receive protect, protection doesn't follow that rationale if unless there's a human involved that's taking it and then doing something further with it. So in a nutshell, that's why copyright law sort of box at, you know, no matter how much you think that, that your, you know, your input prompt, if it's not quite what you're getting, then there's a break there in what copyright law wants to recognize. But Jason, to your point, the better the tools get, 
the more you're allowed to, you know, sort of step in in these interim phases and say, make the neck shorter and make the eyes bluer and, you know, add wings and, and it will listen and not just do some weird 10 fingered version of that, then I think we are getting closer to the type of, uh, of tool that copyright would recognize is furthering an artist's um, trade. Yeah. Yeah, I think you. I think you answered the question that I had primed and ready for you, which is. I'm so sorry. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll no, forget. I said everything I just said. We'll just rewind ten minutes and and then start just again. Delete so, it. Uh, just delete it. <laughs> uh, no, the the question I had primed was: Do you see a point in the future, maybe distant or you know near or distant future, where um, the AI uh, generated art, the outputs that these um, you know generative AI tools put out? would be um, uh, copyrightable. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and it's funny because there's, um, and I encourage everybody and I can send you, I can send you a link uh, when we're, when we're done with this, if you want to put it on the, you know, uh, uh, online, but there's a great white paper, uh, well, uh, opinion paper written by the USPTO, the United States Patent Trademark Office, that goes beyond just trademark applications and patent applications, but into the copyright. And it gives a really nice analysis of this of this um, question. And, and I think, you know, a lot of the details of the answer I'm about to give are there. Um, but I do think that the more we have those controls over it, the less it becomes the product of a computer's mind, mind, and more uh, a product of the artist's mind. You know, and it becomes something like Photoshop, although a little asterisk there with Photoshop's AI tools of you know just <laughs> block out the section, say add a pretty scene, and it will do that. That may actually be pulling back a little bit from what uh, what would allow for protection. So I think AI may, I think Adobe may have jumped the gun a little bit with its introduction of some of the AI tools because they're not as tweakable, quite frankly, as some of the uh, mid-journey stuff yeah. that you see. Yeah, interesting. A, a word. Go ahead, Justin. Oh no, I, I was just going to say that's um, that's really interesting. The the um thought that I had, and, and I may be off about this, but there's a couple of steps in the process where the artist could insert themselves to um, in generating AI art, right? Um, the one that we've been talking about is the person that's sitting in front of the computer, sitting in front of the prompt, writing, saying like, okay, I want, you know, Mario, Incredible Hulk, Star Trek, oh, no, I want a blue uniform instead of red uniform because red uniforms always die. I want, you know, like, and, and you start tweaking that that's that one user that's using the um, front end of the tool, right? Um, now, there can be extra human interaction on the back end of the tool when you're actually training the uh, generative AI, and that is a human is curating what kinds of data sets are going into it to pull from, right? So they may be saying like, okay, I want um, all non-copyrightable, you know, or non-copyrighted works of art to go in here. So maybe all, you know, old works of art, mm -hmm. stuff that's, you know, um, Public domain. That, whose copyrights have expired, etc. It may say, um, a, like anything that's um, free commercial copyright use that's on the internet right mm -hmm. now, I want to pull that in. And then, you know, it can, that human can also say, okay, I don't want vector files because that's just stupid. I want, mm -hmm. you know, I do want these types of files. So does that have a impact on whether or not um ai art would be copyrightable in the future if that human is 
inserting themselves on like what kind of inspiration that generative AI is going to be pulling from and what it's going to train itself on. So I think you've identified something that could be a problem in the future for a copyright. Okay. Yeah. You, you know, yes. um, which problem identifier. Yeah. <laughs> um, because that, that certainly in my mind, it creates a, so, so we have sort of, let's, Posit two artists, if you will, or yep. two two people, and then there's the AI algorithm in between. The one, as you said, who's helping feed the data in, uh, yep. and they they select, they collect, they arrange the data in, and then there's the one at the end who's entering the prompts and say, do something with only that data, right? We're just going to restrict our hypo to just that data, uh, and then the algorithm. The minute the algorithm jumps in, it's going to do something random. It's going to do something random by because that's how the tech works. Uh, and um, copyright law does not like non-human randomization that just comes in and changes things. Now, you may push back and say, what about Jackson Pollock? I mean, you know, there are, there are things that those, you know, that we can think of and go, well, really copyright law? What about that? What about that? And I'd say there are some things that we all accept as art, which, you know, it's just, it's art, man. Don't ask that question too deeply. You know, there's, there's not, there's, there is some sort of a penumbra of uncertainty there. But the, but it is now going to be very clear because everyone is lining up on one side of this divide uh, and the other. And certainly right now, the copyright, I would say the overwhelming um, weight of copyright experts and the copyright office and Congress and all the industry leaders uh, are sort of, with the exception of the, of the tech leaders, I want to be very clear on that, are kind of lining up with this understanding that there needs to be a human as part of the of how it creates what it creates. It's not enough just to say, here are the ingredients, go randomize it as you will in accordance with the prompt. But the, but the problem it creates is, let's say you now have a much more streamlined system where it's data in and it and and you as a curator adding the data in can affect how it's modeled, how it's used. Mm -hmm. Use Caravaggio's lighting, but not his sense of color. Use, you know, a cubist sense of geometry, but not Maxfield Parishes. And, and at some point you may be interject as, as a data selector in that sense, you may be interjecting enough um, enough input uh, that if the AI is, if the AI randomness is reduced, then there may be a situation where the prompt writer and the AI feeder, the, the data feeder, are both contributing something that copyright law would typically see as, as copyrightable work. Mm -hmm. But w without going into too far afield of joint authorship issues, it, it would still, it would still under the current law break down, but it would create a mess. It would, it would, so I think the, the, right now the legislation is aimed at trying to prevent those messes and trying to figure out, okay, are we going to have this clear rule of uh, nothing that goes into the AI is going to count as copyrightability. So no tech companies having co-copyright ownership with, with the prompt creators, which is something that people are trying to avoid. But, I, but I'm not sure that we'd ever quite get to that copyright ownership from somebody feeding in a prompt to a random machine, but it would definitely color the waters a, a lot. Hmm. That's super, super interesting to me because, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at it from these two sides and I can absolutely see the mess, yeah. you know, the train wreck that's, uh, that's in the future. And hopefully there's folks looking, <laughs> looking that are smarter than me at that, you know? So, yeah. The, the thing I would, I would love if, you know, if there were tech company people listening is just, 
to be a little bit more honest about it because because it, it's starting to feel like the tech companies are banging this gong letting anybody can be creator and the reality of of the copyright uncertainty means that that you could be using your ai software spend a lot of time a lot of hours putting something together only to find out that you don't own it or rather you don't own a copyright to it anybody can use it or even worse is that you think you own it no one disabuses you of that notion yeah. you sell it to a publisher you yeah. license it to a publisher or to a or and then boom you are now answering you know their lawyers phone calls why don't they have a copyright in the thing you promised there was a copyright into so and mm. so right now i think some of the tech companies are being a little bit too rose-colored glasses and they really need to address this copyright issue because artists make work for money and that money comes from the leverage of having a copyright to trade so if ai is not going to generate a copyright without a lot of post work the tech companies i think have an obligation to let artists know that so i want to i want to pull on what you just said there you said a lot of post work right yeah so because uh, there are a couple words that you've been using kind of consistently throughout our discussion today that i want to pull on one of them is sure. arrangement Mm -hmm. Right. Whether humans are arranging it versus, you know, algorithms arranging. Another one is random, randomized. Mm -hmm. Those two things. Uh, the first thing I want to point out, you know, as someone who works not in this tech industry, but in the tech industry, it implies various levels of AI and ML, which usually gets tacked on to AI, right? Machine learning, which is just a, subs a subset of a tool to employ mm -hmm. artificial intelligence, uh, is that the randomization is put in there by the algorithm developer. So, these algorithms don't have to be random. They could produce oh. the exact same thing with every prompt if they were configured to do so. They're trained on data. So you pick up, uh, we'll, we'll step away from the art ones for a second and step into maybe the large language models, the generative. Right, chat uh, GPT. Yeah, right. chat GPT, those things, right? What they do is they take a starting point of the of information that they gobble up, you know, poems and, you know, people's letters and memos and all that stuff. And they train it up to a certain point and they stop there. So this is all the data we're ever training on right here, right? And then you ask it a question and it goes back and it says, based on the way that you oriented your words together in your question, what is the optimal path that has always been chosen as people have navigated through those words, right? So the relational positioning. Yeah, the relation, like literally, like <laughs> if you ever use the word the, then goat will 90% of the time will come after the word the. So I'm going to go find where I saw the and goat together and find out what the word that came after that was. And that's mm -hmm. the one I'm going to give you. Right. So that's kind of how it does, that what does you're say? Yeah, it does prediction. <laughs> right. Well, the but, goat, uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, so the reason I'm saying that is that the randomization doesn't have to be there. The artists put it in there. They put something they call dithering. They'll put dithering in there just to, 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 give you a sense of creation, more creation that's in there. So it's very real. And let me paint you a picture, right? Of using these algorithms for things outside of art, like compression. Let's say that, you know, when you compress a JPEG image, right? It compresses down to a certain amount, you, or uh, not an image, a JPEG image, an image to JPEG, which is a lossy, lossy compression. You're cutting out portions of the picture to kind of make it smaller. And then when you get it on your computer, you spread it back up. It looks right. great because we have huge resolution now. But if you were to zoom in and zoom in and zoom in there, you'd start to get pixelation and fuzzy because you've cut some information out. Well, if instead I can make a prompt that will produce that exact same picture with just a, a string of yeah. words, I can send that prompt all the way across the world rather than have to send all of the bits of that image across mm -hmm. the world. And as long as that algorithm is instantiated on both parts of the world, they can instantly reproduce the visual. 
right? So there are all sorts of applications here. In the application of art, I think that they have these companies that have produced them like Midjourney and thing, they've added this sense of dithering and randomization just as an to make it more interesting in the creative process. Now, I don't work on the Midjourney team, so I don't know, but but they don't have to be random. They've chosen to do that with the algorithms that exist today. So I think it, if randomization is a key part of this, there's a very real possibility that you could get tools where you could turn that off, that switch mm. off. So right. if you can, so so yeah. to your point, yes, if you can eliminate the randomness, that does a lot to help the the prompt author uh, gain a copyright, if you will. Um, but the post part is of the selection, the collection and arrangement, yeah. um, the there needs to be at least under con current and longstanding copyright law here in, in the US, there needs to be somebody who is saying this, not that, and I will put this here, not there, um, and, and I will decide to use just this set, not this set over here, uh, and there has to be a minimal amount of creativity. So, so assuming that you eliminate the randomness and you have somebody who's using the uh, the results of the prompt uh, that was less random, and then they were taking it and they were affecting it in some ways, um, you may get closer to a copyrightable image and you still can use the results of AI and get a copyright. But as I was explaining before in the collage of, uh, of advertisements example that, that I made, the copyright is in the collected work yeah. of, of everything, not in the individual components. So, uh, so if someone yeah. wants to use AI now, the, the best way to think about it right now is it's, it's going to spit out a public domain thing to you. Mm -hmm. A public domain artifact, right, to, to sound like a sociologist, yeah. a public yeah. domain cultural artifact that you then, just like you would with a 19th century advertisement, got to do more stuff to mm -hmm. in order to get a copyright. But if you can eliminate the randomness, as you were saying, Jason, um, then you may get closer to something that's like Photoshop if I'm telling it you know, um, use these sorts of brush strokes and, and round out the shoulder more, you know, then, then I do feel I'm getting closer to what I might have if I'm doing CGI modeling on a, on a computer using primarily text prompts, which also happens, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not all, you know, uh, yeah. mouse, you know, me, I mean, people. Yeah. Let me take it a step further. Cause I think that you're hitting, you're really helping to, to kind of refine this. Right. And, uh, let me go into the music industry for a minute because, you know, that's a form of art, right? So uh, in, in electronic dance music, and by the way, I'm a metalhead big time, but I like all sides of music. But in the electronic industry, arpeggiators are huge. So an arpeggiator allows you to, rather than have to play the chord in a certain sequence of all the crazy notes that move really fast, you can just press the chord. And then the computer will pick a random sequence across all the notes in that chord. Oh. And we'll play it. And so what you'll get in the background underneath your, you know, song, you'll you'll hear this kind of synthetic thing going crazy. And a lot of times what a lot of artists have done is they've not created that pattern. What they've done is they've just picked a chord progression and then they've picked a random arpe arpeggiator sequence. To do it. Yeah. So there is a uh, I'll share my screen just so that we have something other than our faces. Look at here just for a second. There's a metal band called Polyphia. This guy is an amazing guitarist. If you listen to this guy, he does a lot of workshops and things. And if you listen to this guy play and he just sits on a bench and he plays, you're thinking, how can a human hand ever do that? And I was kind of looking into him a little bit. And I found he absolutely has that skill. But one of the ways he comes up with his music is he starts with an arpeggiator. So he will actually pick a chord progression. 
he'll play it in the computer and he'll let it move through the different arpeggiator randomized sequences until he finds one that he likes with his ear and his, you know, his heart, his soul. And then he'll get the music on, he'll get that, that on, ca captured from the computer on screen and then he'll translate it to the guitar and he'll incorporate that arpeggiated sequence into his music, right? But I think the key is that he's taken that output from the computer and he has incorporated it into an arrangement with the drums, with the bass, with all of those things. So maybe we extend that concept to art where maybe you take the output of a prompt and you use that as kind of Justin was alluding to earlier as one piece that you then pull five or six other things to, to yeah. arrange into a work of art. Is that copyrightable? Yeah. So again, the, the collection of those things would be, and so let's, let's, I, I love that example. Let's stick with that example. So you have the uh, arpeggiator and I've never used them. Um, but, uh, but let's say you pay, play a G chord. Let me, I just want to make sure I understand the tech, a G chord, which has a G, a B and a D to, to, to make up the notes of that G mm -hmm. chord. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you, and then if I'm understanding it will sort of go through random ways of organizing those notes to create something that sounds it's like it's within the G, the yep. key of G, and then you use that. Yep. So, so that, let's say that was the, the arpeggiated sequence, right? Random sequence, it spits out a couple, you're like, I like sequence number three. And you take that sequence of how it organized those chords. That sequence probably wouldn't be copyrightable just playing right there but the minute you right. put it into your you know one track and then you add another bass track on top of it even if that's also an arpeggiated bass track let's say and the more you can take all of these things as public domain works and just put them together by the collected whole you're going to have a copyright in but what does that mean that that doesn't mean that you can stop somebody from going into your work stripping out all of the others uh, all the other components except for the arpeggiated work that some that is public domain is no copyright and just using that arpeggiated work in their own work so so you have to if what is key to people is they don't want people to go in and use their com the components that were created by ai well you're you're going to be out of luck mm -hmm. there okay. um okay. but what you can protect is you can absolutely protect your collection selection arrangement of all of these public domain elements to something that are put together in the whole. So, you know, there's a, uh, there's a comic book that was the first AI comic book that, that they tried to get registered, uh, late last year, the copyright office said, no, 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 no. Um, but not because you couldn't get a copyright in that book. It's just that the, the copyright, um, uh, filer, didn't say that it was only a copyright in the collected work, but they were trying to get copyright into some of the images and some of the other, the, the elements themselves. So it was, that case became sort of a big cause celeb in the AI litigation, you know, scene. Look, the copyright office rejected AI comic books. No, not quite. You know, it just said, you got to call it out. What is public domain? What is not? What is your copyright in the collected work? Yeah. So one more question I want to throw to Justin because I've been talking a lot. But uh, so and this is probably a really simple question, uh, but I think it's important based on what we talk about. So is a is a copyrighted collection, is it legal to make it severable? Can you separate the components of a copyrighted collection and use them in your own work? 
So uh, give, me an, give me an example. I want to make sure I understand. You're talking about a collage. You're talking about a collection of, of distinguishable individual yeah, works or something a, that works together as a whole. That's a really easy example. Like if somebody has taken a bunch of different works and made a collage, the collage is my copyrighted piece of art. You know, it's in some maybe it looks like a giant whale and I've made it with, you know, pictures of, uh, you know, pictures of uh, clouds or something. John, John Can Lennon. someone take that individual picture of a cloud and yank it out of the middle of my whale and then use that in that work without having any repercussions on copyright law? So are we talking about AI? Or are we talking about just general like copy? Because if it's AI, then then the answer is likely sure. be yes, because as we were saying, there's no copyright in just the instant results of the mm. you know of the copyrighted uh, of the of the ai algorithm and what i mean by that is the first thing that comes out without mm. you affecting it but let's say it's not that let's say it's just it's individual photos that you drew and used and and everything is protectable um then you're going to have to process it through fair use uh and it may be if all you took was something that was this teeny, 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 you know, it's one of those mosaic works, as you said, Jason, of a whale, but the actual thumbnails that make it up are like two millimeters, you know, square. Uh, then a court may, may say, look, no one can even really see what that is. Yeah, you took it. Yeah, we have a, you know, documentation that you, that you took it and used it in your work, but it may be considered de minimis, which means trifling, too little mm. for the court to worry about. If it's larger than that, the court will say, okay, it's protected. You took it. And now we're going to have to deal with a fair use analysis uh, of, of whether or not you are, you know, you're allowed to take it and thus insulated uh, from, from liability. Okay. Interesting. Thanks. So for the last, last little bit that we have of the show, and by the way, this has been a super interesting discussion. Like I've, I've loved every minute of it. It's, it's been great. Um, but for the last little bit of the show, I like I want to switch gears a little bit to sort of the moral con quandary mm-hmm. of AI art in the gaming industry. I know we've touched on it a little bit. We've talked about how it could have real impact on artists' lives and things like that. But um, do you do you think that um, AI art is going to have a more prevalent presence in the gaming industry and? Um, how do you feel about that, good or bad? I think right now, uh, creative industries are are trying to get ahead of being blamed and sort of jumping out with very largely performative and maybe very heartfelt um, statements of how they approach AI. But it, it sometimes it feels a little like, okay, you're just saying that to be performative and we will see how it shakes out. Uh, my guess, if I had to sort of peer into the crystal ball of how this would shake out over the next X amount of years is I think, as Jason was saying, as we get more of these tools to, uh, to affect the process of the AI itself and have more of artistic control on the results, uh, then I, I think you're probably going to have publishing companies and gaming companies saying, hey, well, it's just a tool now. Before it was awful. Before it was the apocalypse. But now, now we're seeing... You know, and and look, I, I want to say I don't I don't like that result. You know, I'm not yeah. advocating for that result. I I think I you know I think John Summerow is one of the greatest artists working today in this in this field. I love John, yeah. and I I want to see the Johns of this world continue to succeed, mm-hmm. um, and, and be recognized because John's work is different from what comes out of an AI, and so does so does everybody who's creating. But I have to believe that for those companies that 
maybe gaming companies will will be the last to do this. Maybe they won't do it at all. But for those other companies that are the uh, companies that are doing the web banner ads and for the ones that are doing the local penny saver magazines and the mm-hmm. local radio spots that need some music, you know, the run of the mill. I don't care if it's copyrightable. I just got to get the marketing message out. That's where I think you're going to see this first impact because they don't care about artists. They're not, you know, you don't go and click on the web banner ad because you like the art uh, mm-hmm. or rather care about the artist. So that's where we're going to see, I think the most, uh, the, the most instant impact, you know, in uh, in that sort of the everyday applied art, um, rather than in the the more nuanced stuff. I'd like to think that gaming companies, which have historically liked probably more than any other creative industry, if I'm being completely honest, certainly more than the film industry that takes ownership with with both hands and you know and, and says you know <laughs> f you to the writers. Um, is a very respectful industry for creators. You know, it's one of the reasons I, I love the industry. There's a there's a an acknowledgement of where we came from, and and it's a very sort of fan you know based culture. So I think that the the those social forces are going to keep some of that at bay for longer than in other industries. Mm-hmm. Film right now, the Writers Guild of America is is on strike now, and mm-hmm. one of the things they're striking about is dealing with AI and 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 the recognition of AI in in script. And it's not a doubt in my mind that if Hollywood thinks it can make money on something to the artists, absolutely. I've been working, you know, film and TV for over yeah. thirty years. I, I that yeah. will be that will happen. You know, minus some performative stuff in the beginning, justifying why it's actually a good thing that they're doing it. But I think the gaming industry is much more. And and let me separate the gaming, the tabletop gaming industry, right, I think the, the video, video game. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, we kind of we're kind of sort of mixing yeah. our terms sure. here because they're sure. it's yeah. gaming, but it's a very they're very different worlds. So uh, that's what we're talking about: the tabletop. Yeah, and, and I think the video stuff. gaming is much more aligned with the Hollywood style yes. that you're talking yes. about. It's yeah. like those big. Um, you know, if a lot of those big uh, video game uh, developers right. could use AI, man, they would they'd do it in a heartbeat, right? Yeah, so. and and video is the next. You know, I mean, we've been talking through this entire podcast about the the graphic uh, generators largely. We haven't really touched too much on Chat GPT, but right. video is the next one out of the gate. Yeah. I mean, they already have examples of it. It it doesn't look great, but it will in a few years. Um, and I, I think what we're going to be looking at the next step and the thing to either worry about or cheer uh, is are going to be these massive suites connect uh, these connectivity suites, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to have a company like Adobe, which is going to say, okay, um, we're going to have an AI app that does the video and the graphic, and, the, and you can just sew it all together um, and in your master control suite, you know, type of thing. Um, and the part of me that likes tech, just like you guys do, um, is kind of looking to. I'm interested in playing with that stuff. I got to be honest, you know. Yeah. But on the, uh, but I'm not John, right? I'm not John Sumro. I, I I don't have the ability to paint a picture like John. So I do also recognize that for me, it creates kind of a a way to cut the line, if you will. You know. Yeah. Now I am a filmmaker, and I've produced a lot of stuff. So. To me, there's very little difference between telling a computer to do it and tell a cameraman to do it or a camera person to do it. But for somebody who's living is use is creating it with their hands, um, you know, it does allow me a chance to jump past a certain degree of of experience that uh, I'm not sure is fair. And I don't think I think many people aren't going to really balance that ethics when it comes to their desire to get something out that they want to do. 
So I, I think it's here to stay, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending upon your view. Yeah, I think um, I think right now, especially like if you look at what John does, right? He he um, was the artist for that Cults of Chaos book mm-hmm. that uh, Chaosium put out. There is no way right now that you can have a generative AI like Midjourney right. produce consistent art throughout a book, right? Yeah. Like the, some we row said, quality. We're going to label that yeah. some row quality art. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> You're welcome, John. <laughs> and, yeah, and and even just the same consistency of art, right? Like because it may pull from different styles, and so like from page to page, if you were to use AI art, like it may feel um, like like a completely different style, a different feel. Right. Um, and one of the big things that we always talk about in our, you know, our review of products that we do, like um, we, we gush and gush about free league publishing and uh, you know, like the one ring the aliens blade runner. Like we look at their books that they have and the art in them is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just sucks you in. I mean, that's the first thing that grabs your attention and then you get to the words. Right. And because of that, I mean, it's so, it's so important, but um, I do, I do think that there is very much a performative aspect that, that you saw with all the social media stands that people were taking, they're planning their banners and they're saying like, we will not do this. Um, but I do think that they meant it because I don't think that they could do it. I mean, I don't even think it's an option right. for them, which is partially why I think it is a little bit performative because they can't, they can't just go to an AI thing and be like, okay, make all of our art from now on because it would look, it would be a disaster in their right. products. Now, I think some of the small, like one-off public, like if I'm publishing like a, a one shot and a, today I do a sci-fi one, tomorrow I do a fantasy one, the next day I do a lowbrow or a low low fantasy medieval one, then the next day I do a, a, a post-apocalyptic one. Um, generating a cover piece for that using AI art, boom, I could slap it on there and put my thing out on DriveThruRPG for $1.99. Right. You know what I mean? And it's great. It's, it, you know, it does what it does in terms of catch an eye. And I don't need any art in the middle because it's a four page document that, you know, I'm just trying to sell for two bucks. Um, I can see where they may use that. And usually that guy, I, I know I'm talking for a little bit here, but usually that guy that's trying to sell it for a dollar 99 on there. Um, in all honesty, probably can't afford the some rows of the world. Right. You know, because they're just trying to put out like, uh, two RPGs a month and they're selling them for $2 hoping yep. someone's going to pick them up, you know, and, and they, they have this podcast the... called tabletop and beyond <laughs> right, not exactly. any money and <laughs> their wives <laughs> are wondering dump. why they keep doing it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. they, um, you know, but like they can't afford like a $500 cover art piece for this thing that they're going to be selling for two bucks. But now they could get on mid journey and be like, Hey, that's spacey enough for what I need. And let me put it on there and call it a day. Right. So um, I, I wonder if there's some uh, moral wiggle room here. You know what I mean? Where these guys aren't the, the guys that are sort of this little, little tiny cottage industry within the gaming industry. They, um, they aren't really, they're doing it because they like it rather than, making a ton of money, you know, maybe they get a couple bucks here or there for it, but they're doing it because they like it and they can't really afford, you know, to do it unless they're coming out of pocket. Um, 
you know, is there a moral difference between them saying like, okay, I'm going to use AI art and like maybe a big company. And I don't, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do see that there's almost like two different tiers here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I, and I think that's an excellent way to look at it. And quite frankly, the, the law doesn't really distinguish that, that way. It might be a very different place and maybe even more fair if it did, but you know, um, but it's not going to look at it that way, right? Just from a legal perspective, if you infringe, doesn't matter if you're a starving artist or if you're a multi-billion dollar company, the tests are the same as to whether or not you're allowed to do that. Um, what's relevant is the use that you put it to um, and how much you took. And did you take the heart of the work? And did you compete with the other, uh, with where you took it? Did you compete with that in the marketplace? And those tests are the tests of fair use. Uh, so, um, so from a moral place, yeah, not the legal place, you make what jokes you want about that distinction. Um, but I think you are going to have that. That's the, that's the real world that will happen. Right. I mean, that's this is where my sort of the real world lawyering butts up against the law professor hat, because yeah. people are going to do what makes them money and gets their word out. And, and artists are going to art. Right. <laughs> you're not yeah. going to start. Uh, you're not going to stop an artist from arting. <laughs> and because of that, you have to recognize that since that will happen, it's like you can have all the marijuana laws in the world. People are going to smoke dope. You can have all the contra anti contraception laws. People are going to have sex. There are things that artists are going to do. They're always going to create and they're going to use whatever they can to get it out there. So uh, even though we may sit here and say it's, it would be better if you didn't, I think it's, it's a useless task to some degree to mm -hmm. tell, to, to, to create this moral rule that will literally not be followed. So yeah. I think a, a better way to do it, it might be on the other end and say, have labeling requirements, even if they're only industry adopted, like AI was used to create this work or no AI, you know, GMO free, AI free, you know, yeah. some little, yeah. you know, yeah. little, little stickers yeah. like that. But, but it couldn't be, I don't think it could even be a legal requirement. It would have to be an industry adopted one, just like the Motion Picture Association of America, you know, had the, the ratings. You know, that's not a legal requirement that they have that. It's just that the motion picture you know, board was formed because they didn't want government involvement. We, we'll regulate it ourselves. So, you know, so I think that's probably the likely splitting, you know, the Solomonic, you know, uh, splitting the baby, you know, that, yeah. that would have to happen. But it's not going away. Artists will use whatever they can. And especially starving artists are going to use whatever they can to make money. Um, so, and I hate the fact that it's a fight of artists against artists as opposed to, because that's just, you know, the marginalized fighting the marginalized as opposed to something, yeah. you know, an onus on the tech companies or the publishing companies to say, AI was used, consumer, you make your choice. So that, yeah. that's where I would start is sort of a, an industry level adoption of a standard of some kind of, mm. you know, to, to let the consumer decide whether they want to want that project. That, yeah. That'd be my take. It'll be interesting I think to see if we get great, that way. Yeah, I was gonna say I think I think that's a great recommendation, which is like here it is. And you know, it's almost like this might be a terrible analogy, but it's almost like the warning labels on cigarettes. You right. know what I mean? Which is like, hey, these could kill you. And people are like, ah, give me like three packs, I'm fine. <laughs> you know, so Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and because people consume art in very different ways. As I said, applied art, you're gonna go, Oh yeah, that's the I like that look of that package but you're not going to 
approach that the same way you would something you hang on your wall or or you look at in a book. So they're going to be different different tiers of how people apply it. But I think the relevant thing, and just to kind of start buttoning out on on my long winded answer, is there's going to be a natural sort of uh, halting of how far companies can take this if they don't have that copyright right in the AI results, mm. right? So until that's worked out better and a company can firmly and swervingly, uh, and swervingly know, hey, the artist who gave me that AI-generated work, I don't have to worry that it's copyrighted. I know it's copyrighted. Yeah. I own the copyright now or I have a license to it. I don't have to worry about the gaming TSR, that's dating me, Hasbro, you know, Wizards yeah. of the Coast, um, you know, suddenly, you know, taking my work because it, I, I have it protected. So I think once we handle that, once people know that it is a bit of a minefield, if you don't know all of the ways that a human interacted with that AI art, you could end up acquiring something that does not have a copyright. And then you as the acquiring party are really out of luck. So I think that force also needs to be known so the companies can make a concerted decision and say, hey, I need exclusivity on John Sumrow. You're getting the best PR in this podcast. Right, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, you know, we know that that everybody identifies as John Sumrow's work. We won't be able to say it's a Sumrow on the cover, and um, and we want to know we have the copyright to that because we don't want to have to, you know, to worry about who owns what or you know or, or somebody else coming in and using the same image. Well, Thomas, this has been such an enlightening discussion. Honestly, like it, it, it it's gone even better than I uh, I imagined. Oh, uh, thank so you. So if if this conversation were in uh, generate you know procedurally generated AI conversation. <laughs> we must have put in the right prompts. Well, I want to be Star Trek, not the mutant turtle or you know or Mario. So if I could just <laughs> Yeah. Speaking speaking of which I wanted to um I wanted to share Jason, I don't know if you um if you did yours, but I wanted to um Share my thing real quick. Oh, share it. Yeah, let's see what it. Let's see what it is. Yeah. We can. Yeah. yeah, here it is. Here's my. Here is my Mario. Oh, that was it. Track, <laughs> uh, Incredible hope. So you've got Mario down here. You've got uh, William Shatner face. I think you know in a beefed out Star Trek uniform. So that's what that's what mine did when I put those three. I put Super Mario, Incredible Hulk, Star Trek, and that's what I got right there. You so. wouldn't like me when I'm angry. <laughs> exactly did you get yours jason or no nah, i didn't save it unfortunate <laughs> uh, that's unfortunate so i think yeah, but, um, better anyways yeah uh, yeah so anyway but um uh thomas thank you so much for being on the show i you know i learned so much um from you and you know i think that knowing the facts, no understanding what copyright is, understanding what AI is, right? Understanding yeah. those two things um, leads us to better answer the moral questions behind it, yeah. which is like, what do we do with artists that are actually trying to apply their trade? What do we do with the industry? Um, because I think, unfortunately, all of those things get thrown into the stew pot and mixed right. around and you just kind of don't know what you're getting right from it. And so um, this kind of light on the problem, I think is, is educational. Um, it's really interesting. And uh, I hope our listeners got a lot from it uh, as, as much as I did. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, for those who are listening, go check out Thomas Crowell's um, stuff. Yeah. Thomas Crowell.com. 
Um, he's got the pocket lawyer for filmmakers. He's got the pocket lawyer uh, for comic books uh, that you can find on Amazon. Uh, go to his webinar. Go check him out at New York Comic Con. Uh, obviously, a very entertaining guy. I'm sure if you bought him a drink, he'll talk your ear off. So, you know, I mean, I'm making promises for you, Thomas. So, you know. <laughs> well, thank, thank you guys so much for, again. Well, thank you for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. And again, I, I just have to say to those listeners, too, these guys are asking the right questions. You know, I've been on a lot of podcasts about AI recently. You guys have the right approach to understanding the issues. Too often it gets conflated and I have to spend my time saying, no, that's not quite the issue. I didn't have to do that here. You got it. And so I'm glad there are people like you who are just promoting the complexity of it because that gets lost all too often. Yeah. Well, we appreciate it. We appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, had a lot of like fun. We, Thanks. Yeah. Thank you so much. So um, everybody, if you love this episode, give us a like, uh, smash that subscribe button and, uh, and give it a share. Uh, you know, you can find us on YouTube. You can find us on all of your major uh, podcast uh, platforms. And um, so we, we hope to hear from you again soon and we'll see you at the tables. Have a great night, everybody.